The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. My name is Jeff Bilbro, and I am delighted to be joined today by Francis Sue to talk with you about uh, math as a liberal art and how math uh, can be play an integral role in liberating us to uh, better love uh, those around us. Uh, Francis Sue is a is the Benedictine Carwet Professor of Mathematics at Harvey Mudd College, and he is the past president of the Mathematical Association of America. So he is outstanding in his field as a mathematician. But I think, as you'll see, he has a rare gift for doing high-level mathematics and then writing about it in a compelling way for a broader audience. Uh, and just to, to give you a hint of what that sounds like, I want to read you a sentence from his book, Mathematics for Human Flourishing, that we'll be talking about today. He writes there near the beginning, a society without mathematical affection is like a city without concerts, parks, or museums. To miss out on mathematics is to live without an opportunity to play with beautiful ideas and to see the world in a new light. To grasp mathematical beauty is a unique and sublime experience that everyone should demand. So hopefully after our conversation today, or, and or after you pick up his book, uh, you will have a heightened appreciation of both the beauty um, and the liberating power of mathematics. So Francis, I wanna, I wanna begin with a couple of questions that maybe address some common misconceptions that I think your book helpfully uh, addresses. And, and the first one is one that I hear at my school where sometimes liberal arts becomes kind of a stand-in for humanities. So we talk about the liberal arts, but really we mean the humanities. And your book obviously makes a case that Hey, math's a liberal art too. Uh, of course, traditionally with the seven liberal arts, the trivium was oriented around the word and the quadrivium was around math and around numbers. Um, so this is not a new idea with you. You're, kind of, you're trying to reclaim a very old idea. But what might be lost when we forget that math is indeed a foundational liberal art? Yeah, great. First of all, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I, I think this is an important discussion for uh, all of us as we think about uh, the future of uh, higher education. Uh, math is something that I, I think often people associate with um, something that I need to learn in order to get a good job, uh, get, a good, uh, get, get a good career. Um, some people use math as a, a way of signaling that uh, they've uh, accomplished something or arrived somewhere. Um, uh, and so it, it can also sometimes be used as a way that, um, you know, people um, signal that they, um, that they've achieved something. Um, now, if I think a little bit about what liberal, the liberal arts, you know, I often think of liberal arts as helping people understand what it means to, to live life well. Um, uh, 
to explore what is good and, and true uh, and, uh, and live as a human being. And, and so when I think of the humanities, you know, I, I often think of, of studying humanities in helping me shape how I understand how human beings relate to one another. Uh, and I think of the sciences and mathematics as helping uh, us understand how we as human beings relate to the world around us. And so I think that's, that's what we would stand to lose if, if we don't think of mathematics or even the sciences in, in some ways as, as uh, liberal arts, uh, is we, we lose our understanding of our place in the world and uh, how we relate to it and how we should relate to it in, in good uh, and, uh, and, uh, and just ways. Yeah, and I guess the, the word you settle on in your book to name that is flourishing, right? This idea that math is central to, to human flourishing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, of course, I, I've been pulling from some of the, the, the conversations around human flourishing that have been happening uh, uh, at, at large uh, in thinking uh, the, from, from a philosophical tradition of how to live life well, what does it mean to flourish as a human being? And, uh, I wanted to pull in uh, this idea to think about mathematics in that way. I mean, part of the, I think part of the the problems that that we we have uh, these days, and in, in the way people think about math and the way that we teach math, is uh, that we've sort of not uh, thought about the the bigger, larger question of what math is for. Like, why should we learn math? I mean, is it only to get a good job? Is it only to uh, signal a certain kind of elitism or achieve power. Uh, and, uh, and so what I try to do in the book, which uh, incidentally came out of a speech that I gave, um, and what I tried to do in that speech was to try to, to um, call people back to asking that question. What is math for? What are the purposes of mathematics? Because if we can't get on the same page about that, then it's, it's actually... Uh, going to lead to lots of divergent uh, views about how math could be used. Yeah, and you're already leading into my, my other question about the ways that math might be misunderstood, which is, you know, if some people on the humanities side, and I'm an English prof, so this is, you know, where I am, tend to write off math as this uh, irrelevant to liberal arts, irrelevant to human flourishing. Sometimes people uh, on the STEM side, the math and sciences, can um, view math, like you said, as sort of career preparation or a means to get a good job and teach it, teach those disciplines in ways that uh, make it more difficult for students to see them as integral to human flourishing, mm -hmm. as uh, pathways to wonder and, and to a deeper beauty. Uh, and you, you talk about Simone Weil uh, in your book and her brother, but I also think about people like Blaise Pascal or Isaac Newton these you know, profound mathematicians, many others actually, who uh, also do theology or also do deep philosophy. So that historically math has been a, a discipline that was more closely, I guess, connected to, um, to human flourishing and, and even theology. So I guess my question is how might we recover uh, a view of math as a means of human flourishing at least for Christians at Christian universities, how might we recover math as a handmaid into theology? Is that, is that possible? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, if you look at how the public normally thinks of math, they think of math as, 
uh, as just applying formulas, plugging, uh, plug and chug, uh, um, or maybe uh, involving lots of rote memorization, and certainly uh, in, sometimes taught that way. And, uh, and one of the, the things that is, you know, funny when you think about that is that, uh, you know, if we think about what we're teaching our kids in, in mathematics, what we ought to be teaching our kids in mathematics, it's, it's really how to think well. And learning how to think well and carefully is actually what is going to stay with you the rest of your life, right? It's not going to be the specific facts that you memorize that are going to be important. You know, when most, most uh, people come to, to me and ask, you know, uh, they want, they're looking, the employers are looking to hire math majors. They're, they're not looking to uh, hire them for necess necessarily for specific mathematical knowledge. They're looking to hire them because they're creative problem solvers, because they can think well, because they know uh, they have a certain persistence that uh, in, in sitting with a hard problem for a while and, uh, and not necessarily solving it right away, but, uh, but, but they know how to sort of push through the hard, uh, the hard uh, thinking in order to get through the other side. And so uh, I like to call it, think of these as mathematical virtues, right? Persistence, creativity, endurance, uh, confidence in struggle, um, the ability to reflect, uh, the uh, uh, ability to generalize and, and uh, understand patterns. These are all virtues that stick with us. And uh, these are the things that, that I think are the most important. This is part of what it means to, to think mathematically. So, um, uh, and you know, of course, one of the things, uh, the, the virtues that when you do math well, uh, that, that is built is, is a certain sense of, of awe and wonder, right? When you, you see uh, a pattern that you've discovered and someone completely separated from you in, in time and space and culture uh, discovers the same pattern, then you, you begin to think that there's some underlying reality that, that, that you're experiencing uh, and that is, is somehow transcends uh, physical space. Uh, and and so this leads to a certain kind of transcendent awe. And so it, it's not surprising that sometimes people speak about math like uh, others speak about uh, theology uh, uh, or uh, in divine terms. Uh, and so math, I think, um, uh, is in some ways a handmaiden to, to theology. It, it, there, there are lots of parallels. Um, uh, if you think a little bit about uh, um, and there's lots of ways that they inform each other as well, right? Like, so for instance, it, you know, I, as a mathematician, I have an understanding of the infinite. And, you know, when, when people talk about God being infinite, for instance, uh, as a mathematician, I, I know how intricate and uh, amazing uh, that statement is. Uh, and so, you know, there are ways in which my understanding as a mathematician of some of these profound, beautiful, deep ideas like infinity and symmetry and um, and uh, beauty in, in mathematics, how that can help inform uh, a, a a life that uh, seeks to to step outside itself and and look um, at uh, at bigger things. Yeah, I was talking to a colleague uh, this past week, and his daughter is um, taking taking school online this you know, she's an 11 year old i think taking school online because of the pandemic and she's doing her math problems on the ipad you know and it's and she thinks she's doing fractions and you know it's time test 
And if you get it wrong, it, it you know, locks you out. Or it's, it's, it's such a frustrating experience for her because if she has questions, there's not really anywhere to go. Uh, and he was kind of lamenting, you know, how is this going to, is this going to make her hate math? Uh, is this going to ruin her? And, and I was sort of contrasting that when, when I teach the divine comedy, uh, it ends with this vision of the Trinity that Dante has and God is sort of the three persons of God or the circles. And, and then he talks about how, how is it possible that Christ who is a person is also the God. And he relates it to the problem of, of squaring the circle as trying to, understand how Jesus could be both man and God. And it's this really intricate uh, mathematical analogy he's setting up there. Uh, and I usually, you know, try to draw on the whiteboard, try to at least explain enough math so my students are like getting what he's doing. But I think, you know, are, are students formed in our school system? Are they even like, that's not, you know, Dante is, think, is doing math in a whole different way there. It's mm -hmm. not some sort of, as you said, chug and plug, you know, it's not this rote it's a it's a portal to the, to awe and to the infinite and to to kind of naming these patterns that are almost beyond human perception you know right at the edge of perception um i mean you talk in your book about the different kinds of infinity there are and how so, so that it's it's a way of being very precise about mystery um, yes. and i worry that that our the way that we teach math yeah. Well, kind of lock so many people out of understanding math in the way that you describe it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that you use the word mystery. I mean, that's, uh, that's uh, central to the mathematical experience is uncovering mystery, right? If we see a pattern, we want to understand why that pattern exists and, uh, and see it as part of a larger narrative so that we, we construct, we make meaning uh, of the things that we see that they're not just, they're not just random things that happen, right? Like we, we're in the middle of a pandemic uh, and, uh, and those uh, of us who uh, have had mathematical uh, training understand what exponential growth means and how important it is to, to get uh, a pandemic under control at the very earliest stages. And that's, you know, that's a, a certain kind of um, uh, uh, ability to see hidden patterns that I think that it would be great if everyone would have. And yet the way we teach math often isn't like that at all. There's no mystery at all. It's like, okay, well, here's some stuff that a bunch of dead people 400 years ago uh, 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 taught us and we need to, to memorize uh, without, without necessarily doing the hard work of understanding. Uh, and so one of the things that concerns me a lot is that your friend's daughter is, uh, because she's worried about time tests, and the um, performance that's associated with that. Um, it, it, uh, I do worry about um, people conflating math with being quick, right? Like I, I like to think that math uh, is actually, it's more important to be slow than to be fast, to think about ideas really deeply. And, and that's something that's very central to the idea of studying anything uh, as a liberal art is to think about simple ideas uh, in uh, deep and profound ways. Uh, and 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 that and that's how math is done. And yet somehow your your friend's daughter is getting the message that math is about uh, recalling things uh, in uh, very quick ways. And and that, to me that's 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 that that's math being used in harmful ways. Um, yeah. Well, you've already mentioned this, but you you talk several several junctures in the book about um, 
I, I think you said math is the power to see hidden patterns or uh, it's the science of patterns. And I love this phrase, the art of engaging the meaning of those patterns, right? Like understanding what a pattern means, what it's analogous to, what it's not analogous to. Um, and, and when you, you know, with reading those sections of the book, I thought this is a lot of what poetry, you know, I teach poetry classes and we talk about analogy and metaphor all the time. Um, do you have any insights into how sort of mathematical modes of relating disparate ideas and mathematical modes of identifying patterns might be both similar to, but also different and distinctive from verbal modes? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, of course, we're getting at the trivium and the quadrivium right. here as well. Um, uh, one thing that's really uh, been fun the last few years is I've actually been teaching a writing course uh, at Harvey Mudd. Uh, and uh, in doing so, I've noticed a lot of commonalities between writing and uh, mathematics. Uh, and both are, um, I think, uh, in both communication is central, uh, uh, the ability to construct arguments um, and uh, making, making creative choices about how you communicate and, and, uh, and construct those, uh, those arguments and, and build up those ideas and present those ideas. And so especially in poetry, you know, I mean, poetry is all about like uh, creating a, a feeling uh, in the reader and you want to choose the right word and choose it carefully. And, and that's very similar in mathematics because, you know, in math often there are multiple ways to understand something. And mathematicians are always searching for the most beautiful, the most elegant way of seeing a pattern or seeing an idea. And it's exactly the same feeling. Like if you, if you pick the right word in a poem, it's the same feeling you get when you, you see the right way to understand an idea. Uh, and um, there's a lot of, there's great satisfaction when you do it well. Um, uh, I, and of course, on, on the other side, there's also a lot of anxiety around, people have around, uh, around uh, mathematics, uh, but there's, it's similar in some ways to the anxiety people have about writing. Like if they, you know, I ask my students to write an essay and you get writer's block. You're like, oh no, how am I supposed to write an essay on this and, um, and do it by tomorrow? Uh, and so, yeah, so there's that. Um, I think in, 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 in writing uh, and in mathematics, uh, uh, clear uh, communication is actually intertwined with clear thinking, right? If, if you're not able to think well, then you're not gonna be able to communicate your ideas uh, well. Um, I, I think there's some differences though. I mean, I guess one, one difference would be um, maybe the degree of precision about the meaning of ideas that, you know, if I have a conversation with you uh, about a mathematical idea, uh, I, I guess math often tries to to quantify or to clarify the ideas with good definitions. Uh, and, and maybe uh, I don't see the same level or the ability to, to be that precise about ideas that aren't mathematical. And that could also reflect my own lack of understanding about uh, the English language. But um, it's not to say that the English language doesn't have distinctions or nuances or good definitions, but I think it's often harder for people to converse about it. Whereas if you get two people to talk about a mathematical idea, there's, there's often very little um, in the way of uh, people misunderstanding each other, each other as long as they, they have, um, they have uh, the, the, the right, uh, they, they've agreed on a common definition. Yeah, so I, 
I don't know, I guess there's some lots of similarities and maybe a few distinctions uh, as well. Yeah, I like what you said there. And, and it's probably true that, you know, for instance, poetry is notoriously hard to translate. But uh, math, I think you can, you can communicate, as you just said, you can communicate across cultural or linguistic barriers. Yeah, pretty well, as long as you have the right notations and, and formulae. So that, that's and maybe it also gets back by what you said earlier about this sense of awe at these truths uh, and patterns that, that transcend time and place. Yeah, I just thought of another example as you said that. So like, yeah, math, people think of math as a language in some sense. And, uh, and there is this, um, it is true that like if, you know, you there might be a mathematical idea that I understand through a certain uh, subfield of mathematics one way, and then as other subfield, I understand it another way. And there is a translation that sometimes has to happen. And, uh, and it is also true that some ideas are easier to express in one language, mathematical language, than in another, right? So there is maybe that commonality, like um, just like in poetry, you, you can't really translate the poem easily to another language, but, um, and it might be easier to express in one language than the other. So like whether it be geometry or, or number theory or yeah. even move, I see, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, so geometry and algebra is a good example, right? Like if, if I ask you to express a circle, uh, geometrically, you think of this picture. And if I ask you to express it algebraically, you think of uh, x squared plus y squared equals one, right? Uh, and these are both ways of understanding the same idea, but there are advantages to thinking about it one way than the other way, depending on what you uh, are interested in, in using it for or understanding. Yeah, that's helpful. But I, and I do think you're right too, that, that there is something really satisfying about the precision that math is able to provide. That is sometimes, sometimes a poem can actually do that well, but it's sometimes there's a sense of frustration because, because language seems to approach reality sort of asymptotically, right? You can get closer and closer to naming what you want, but, you, but there's always a gap between the word and the reality that's signified. Hmm. And obviously in mathematical language, you know, it, it, there's a certain level of abstraction, I suppose, too. Uh, there's no, you know, perfect circle that that's, you can talk about perfect circles, but you may not be able to draw one. Um, and, and yet there, there's something satisfying about the, uh, I guess, the rigor of mathematical language that. Yeah, and that, that can be part of its appeal for some people. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the, I want to talk too with you, Francis, about this, the sort of effects, I guess, uh, of math or of people who are formed to, to see and use math this way. Um, so I wanna ask you a political question, but, but I do so hesitantly because one of the things I loved about your book was that in a moment that, that sort of politics seems to sort of subsume all the discourse, I think your book, is, it's very political actually, but it's sort of pretty political, right? There's all these um, arguments about human flourishing that have all kinds of political implications. And yet math seems sort of transpartisan as it were right it, uh so I, I guess one passage that stuck out to me was when you briefly mentioned orwell um and you talk about the, this these challenges of public discourse that is so deceitful and, and uh, misinformation i guess and you write the mathematical thinking equips us to figure out what's going on and to bother math explorers care about deep knowledge and deep investigation that maybe math could teach us to pursue truth, 
to believe truth is out there uh, and to have you earlier talked about the slowness or the patience, I guess, to, um, to figure out what's, what's real. So I guess my question is, are there other ways that you think that math might help us to be better participants in, in civic discourse? And, um, you know, maybe, maybe not in a, maybe not because we get statistics or something, although I guess that helps too. I mean, you talked already about understanding exponential curves and how that might apply to the pandemic. But I'm thinking on a more formative level. How how do the the discipline does the discipline of math shape us to be better political uh, neighbors? Yeah, that that's a great question. I mean, I, I certainly in the book do talk a, a bit about uh, what does it mean to understand truth, uh, especially in an age where misinformation is is rampant. Uh, and um, one of the things you have to first uh, wrestle with is whether there is truth actually to be had, right? And, and uh, I, I, I do find it a little bit ironic that, um, uh, that, you know, uh, often now, you know, people who in the past have had uh, maybe um, uh, concerns about uh, discussing truth uh, and uh, uh, saying that there is no absolute truth are now people who are saying, wait a minute, that there is truth. And, uh, and uh, we have to stand up for it in, a, in an age where um, uh, other uh, political actors are not uh, being truthful. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of complexity and nuance around truth, I think. And I think that's, that's, that's what's hard uh, to capture uh, in our political polarization is the fact that sometimes truths are um, complex and they have nuance. And uh, we have to avoid easy simplifications. Uh, I do think mathematical training uh, does give us a way of, of thinking about uh, truth uh, in, in better ways. Um, uh, to avoid easy simplifications, um, to, to be able to think for oneself and not take every statement on authority. So a lot of the polarization that I see right now is happening because people uh, only trust certain sources and they then they take those sources and they accept everything they say at face value and without thinking about it and you know one thing that math trains you to do is is to actually think for yourself and so you know when somebody makes some statement or some claim uh, about um, uh, uh, any any fact mathematical fact you know maybe maybe it's the size of some crowd at some event right um, you can actually do the math to understand enough about uh, about uh, numerical uh, uh, estimates to be able to say, hey, you know, I don't actually, I think that was an exaggeration, right? And so you you know whether the answer you're getting is reasonable or not. I mean, that's something that, that teachers do all the time. Great te math teachers do is ask students to think, is my answer reasonable? And so at the same time, I guess I want to be really careful and say that you know, just because you have mathematical training doesn't necessarily mean that you, you do the transference and, and carry over this idea of uh, nuance and complexity in understanding uh, and uh, to other domains. And so that's part of also what I'm advocating uh, in, in, in my writing often is, hey, you know, we, we train students to think uh, carefully in, in mathematics and uh, how can we actually help people to actually do the transference and say, hey, this is actually something that should, should help us uh, live, live well and, and uh, 
get a better handle on truth in other areas of our lives. Yeah, and what you're saying too about um, uh, making or, or encouraging you to think for yourself reminds me that it seems like a good math teacher, and you talk about this, I think, too, actually, um, always makes their students show their work, right? And you, you actually can sometimes get, get a lot of points on a test if you get the wrong answer, if you can show that you were thinking in, in a good mathematical manner. And so maybe if uh, we demanded of our politicians or journalists, uh, others making public arguments to show their work uh, in a way and, and recognize that um, you, know, you can make authoritative statements, but you have to be able to back those up with persuasive reasoning. I, I respect the way that mathematicians you know, challenge each other. You talk several times in this book about times when you know, junior colleagues, like a grad student in one case, challenges a, or can't solve the problem and realizes the problem's wrong. You know, math is, is sort of egalitarian in that way, in a way that's very refreshing because mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a demand like, is, can, you, can you show that this is accurate or not? And if you can't, you gotta fix it. Yeah, and, and maybe this, this relates to a larger, uh, a larger um, point around, uh, around uh, education and liberal arts uh, in the sense that um, I think we're trained, especially mathematics and in, in sciences to be circumspect uh, about the, the claims and not overstate things. Uh, and, and that's something that's, I think, harder in the political sphere because people are always just saying the strongest thing possible uh, without uh, necessarily um, being more circumspect in, in, uh, in, um, in what they say. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, in my, in my writing classes, I'm always telling students to define their terms, to be precise, you know, to, to not make overgeneralizations. Uh, but of course, that's not what you see uh, in the sort of broader public discourse. Yeah. So. And it, re it requires a, a, a public, a, a, um, a, a populace that is actually uh, um, uh, able to appreciate nuance and complexity, right? Yeah. So that, that also points to the importance of, of um, growing uh, uh, thinkers who know how to handle ideas. Yeah, that there's a, a critical mass of citizens who demand that kind, that level of precision and accountability and nuance in their public discourse and won't put up with politicians or others who, who refuse to, um, to pursue truth and try to speak, out, speak truth. So yeah, absolutely. That's one reason why we need you know, more people formed in, in these sorts of virtues, right? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh... I agree, and of course, I, I'm I'm trying to to call math math educators to to think about some of these things as well, right? Math isn't just uh, a bunch of things that have no connection to uh, reality or the context or the culture in which uh, these uh, these ideas uh, take place. And so, uh, how do we uh, actually train people to think well uh, in uh, in whatever context they're in? Uh, that's that's the transference that I think. It's often missing from from uh, a math class. You know, people think math is just learning how to add and multiply fractions, right? Right. I mean, your book is so it's you know it I think restores the human role of math. I remember my calc prof at, at uh, community college would bring in like sort of one page biographies every week of some. It, it was always some mathematician in the past who 
developed or pro proved or something that we were working on in class maybe. So there's always a tie-in. But he would just read this biography and say, you know, this person, uh, you know, in this time period, you know, developed this theorem that we're going to use this week. And it was a great way, I thought, to put a human face on math and to re-embed it in a social context. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what your book does in its own way, too. That, that math is not something that calculators do, uh, but it's a human art. Um, that, yeah, of course, I like to say that anything that a calculator can do actually isn't math. Right? <laughs> math yeah. is about the understanding that went into uh, how we got the calculator to do what it does. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the, one of the I, I guess I should mention uh, that Francis's book has on the title, With Reflections from Christopher Jackson. And throughout, I think at the end of every chapter, there is a letter from Chris, um, who you find out as you read the book, um, is an incarcerated individual and has been teaching himself, really, uh, through books and then through correspondence with Francis and others, uh, mathematics. And those, it's a lovely line, through line throughout the book, and then it culminates in this interview you have with him at the end. But I guess sort of reflecting on what you've learned from him and in conversation with him, uh, can we talk about like what kind of freedom math provides? You know, you, you, I love in your chapter on freedom, you say, this is something I try to get to my students all the time, that, that freedom is not the absence of constraints. Uh, and you say true freedom comes, never comes without cost, relationship or responsibility. You know, I, I like to talk about negative freedom, i.e. the absence of restraints versus positive freedom, i.e. Uh, maybe in, in the context of your book or the terms of your book, uh, the freedom to flourish as a human being. That's sort of what what are you free to do? Uh, but but how do you think math is a sort of liberating discipline? I mean, either drawing on Chris's experience or or otherwise, how, how might math liberate us to use our freedom to help others to flourish and to serve our communities? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a great question. I mean, I guess one way I think about math is, as I said before, that it's the power to see hid, hidden patterns. Uh, and, and really what I'm, I'm speaking to there is that it's, it's the freedom to see the world as it really is, right? Like um, if, if I uh, also, as I mentioned before, uh, understand how exponential growth works, then I actually now am freed to see why quick action is necessary to save lives. Uh, that's something that uh, becomes a lot clearer to me now uh, 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 that I, you know, have that lens on which to view the world. I and mean, this is this is also again how uh, uh, you think a little bit about search engines, which uh, are now almost indispensable in the way we live today. Uh, what is a search engine doing? It is actually seeing hidden patterns in some ways. And and so uh, if we are freed up to um, to see the patterns around us, then that's, that is actually one way that we are able to see, for instance, the injustices that are around us. Uh, and and that's, that's one way in which we would want to hopefully see our, our communities flourish is to rectify some of those injustices. Um, uh, some of the things that are happening today, again, are related to social media and its polarization and uh, it, the effects of, of algorithms that are uh, being used to decide who gets loans and who doesn't, or what news you see and what 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 doesn't. There's an example of uh, mathematical 
ideas that are being used in ways that are not accountable. And, uh, and these are ultimately um, uh, not, not freeing, right? So math can be used in, in, in very negative, nefarious ways uh, as well. Yeah, I think uh, you cite Weapons of Math Destruction, I believe. Yes. Which yes. is a great book on the ways that algorithms can sort of perpetuate or create even injustice. Yes. Uh, but the sort of the flip side too is if you understand that, maybe you could, as you're suggesting, I think, recognize those and, and work against them. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, you know, that's part of the, the, the like, I, I wouldn't want people to come through a math education and just, uh, if, if they're not thinking holistically about how math fits in, and this again gets points to the importance of the liberal arts, how does math fit into the bigger picture of what we're learning and why we're learning it, then of course it's going to be easily used and misused uh, in ways that, that don't achieve human flourishing uh, for, for uh, some people. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the thing about that that's really uh, wonderful about Chris and my friendship with Chris is, is not how much math I've taught Chris, right? That's, that's not what the story in, in, is about, right? What, what I, I hope comes through in the book is, this is really how much Chris has taught me about uh, what does it mean to flourish in mathematics, right? I mean, here, here's a guy who's in prison for uh, 30 uh, something years. Uh, he's not gonna get out uh, anytime soon unless some miracle happens because there's no parole in the federal system. And yet he's studying calculus. Now, why would somebody study calculus that they're they're not uh, going to use in a career, right? Like that's that's sort of the the question that in in some ways opens the book, right? Why why is someone bothering to study mathematics uh, that they're not going to use professionally? Uh, and so that's kind of the 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 journey that I've been on in thinking about. Wow, like I mean, I I know math inspires me, but do I really believe that math can inspire anybody? Um, uh, where would be Chris be uh, now if somebody had recognized his potential uh, 15 years ago, right? How many people are we uh, discounting uh, because we don't believe they have potential? Uh, how uh, often is it that we always think of math as as a skill you either have or you don't? rather than uh, a, uh, a uh, uh, something that, uh, a, an ability that can grow with practice and hard work, right? That's, that's a very different view of mathematics that I wish m more people had. Uh, and so um, it leads in all sorts of, you know, crazy things, right? You, so, so people think you're either a math person or you're not, right? But you don't, we don't do the same thing with, with other, uh, uh, with other things like music, right? I mean, certainly there are some people who, you know, you, you say, okay, they're virtu virtuoso uh, uh, musicians and they're talented, but we, we don't shame people because we don't say you're either a math person or you're not. We don't either say, we don't say people shouldn't uh, go into a sport because you either have the sport gene or you don't, right? Everybody can grow uh, in sport and in music, and that's certainly true in mathematics as well. And so I, that's, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I am not a gifted musician, but I'm grateful that my parents made me practice the piano for years yeah. because uh, I value music in ways now that I wouldn't if I, and I'm still not a great piano player, 
but it changed me. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for what it did to me and, and what I'm able to see. I think math is the same way. I'm not a, I'm not a brilliant mathematician, uh, but I'm grateful that I, you know, I had people who pushed me to learn math and, and helped me to see it in a way that was life-giving so that I could enjoy it. And, and it's valuable, even if you aren't going to be a number cruncher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, and your example is a good one with, with, uh, music and practice and, you know, there's an investment of money and time, uh, that now gives you the freedom, a certain kind of freedom you didn't have before because your, your parents invested the money and you invested the time. Uh, you now have the ability to appreciate something really glorious, which is music. And in the same way, I, I think that's, that's, uh, something that people are missing out in, uh, on in mathematics, um, without, uh, having that freedom uh, to see underlying patterns. Yeah. And, and I really, I mean, I, I was moved by some of Chris's letters because, well, for many reasons, but one thing that I thought was moving was, um, on the one hand, he, he, he never sort of, he always takes responsibility for where he is and for the decisions he made. But like you said, there's that sort of question that haunts his story about what if somebody saw something in him and, and challenge him. He says, you know, what if, what if I had been challenged by an adult uh, in a way that I never was? And, and what if somebody saw giftings in him that nobody ever did because of the color of his skin or from where he grew up in, the neighborhood he was, he was in? And it's this tragedy. Um, he seems like such a remarkable person. Um, so, so I think those letters and his reflections in your interview are really, I guess, both wise. It's a small part of the book, but I think walking away from it, it's one of the, the parts that I'm going to keep thinking about and sort of haunted by. Yeah. Uh, because it seems like such a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it haunts me too. And it, it's, it's, um, uh, I think, uh, a really poignant reminder uh, to us all that, um, we, we don't just exist in a vacuum and, uh, we have responsibilities to one another. Um, and, you know, part of the argument I make in this book is that uh, if we don't see the mathematical potential in uh, others, we are not loving them well. Uh, and uh, if, if we want to think about what love is and what it means, it also means it, that we have a responsibility to see and nurture the potential in every human being, including ourselves. It, it means not discounting our own uh, abilities, right? Like, um, you, you just did it without realizing it earlier. You said, I'm not a brilliant mathematician. And, you know, so, so in some ways, I, I want, I, I would love for us to get away from the idea of math being associated with, with brilliance uh, and uh, more associated with, uh, with uh, the, the virtues that are developed by uh, thinking uh, and doing the hard work of thinking, the joy of, of hard work and thinking, right? And, and you certainly experienced that in your education, even though you wouldn't call yourself brilliant. And, and I think that's really, that's really what we should be after. I mean, if math, math is for flourishing, right? Not uh, for performance, um, then we would think very differently about it in the way we, we approach it and teach it. Yeah, and at the, at the end of your book, you talk about um, math as a way of, of love. And you've already talked about this some with Christopher, you know, why, why does he want to bother learning calculus if he's not gonna game professionally? You write movingly, I think, about a moment in your career as a grad student when you wondered if uh, you, you were not going to have a career in math. 
and, and it's like when, when these extrinsic goods are stripped away, when you're, when you're deciding is math worth doing for its own sake, that then I guess there's that possibility of, of doing math for love uh, because of this desire for justice or truth, um, this, this enjoyment of its beauty. I guess I wonder, and I, I'm thinking also of Zena Hitz's book, uh, Lost in Thought, which I read this summer. And, and one of her examples, you know, she traces all these people who kind of recover a, a love for the intellectual life when they're in prison or when they lose their job, you know, or, or when some external, when the extrinsic goods are stripped away. And I guess I want to, that seems like a true experience. But I want to hope that we could enjoy some of the extrinsic goods, right? That maybe you could be a professor of mathematics and maybe your students could, uh, you know, maybe some of them will get jobs in mathematics and use their mathematical education. That'd be, that would be fine. And yet they would continue to prize it for its human goods. You know, I, I guess my question is how do we rightly prioritize these things? How do we remember the, the intrinsic goods and do math out of love? Um, do we have to lose the, do we have to lose our jobs or go to prison? I hope not. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do we have to, to die to ourselves in right. some sense, uh, in order to, uh, appreciate, uh, what education has to offer, um, the intrinsic goods education has to offer. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, it's a question I ask myself all the time. And I think one of the reasons it's hard is that we live in a society uh, in a culture that prizes accomplishment and achievement. Uh, and it's so easy to get wrapped up in doing anything, whether it's mathematics or not, uh, because of the extrinsic goods that it offers, right? It, the possibility of getting a good job, uh, the ability to be seen as smart and brilliant. You know, that's, that's something that often uh, motivates people to do mathematics or the ability to prove an, a famous theorem that'll get my name on it for all eternity. Uh, that's, these are extrinsic uh, goods. And, you know, I think uh, part of the reckoning that I had to do for myself was having been motivated for, by all those things all my life and then coming to a place, graduate school, where I realized I'm not the smartest, I'm not the best, uh, I may not ever uh, get any of these uh, extrinsic goods that I was looking for. Uh, is this really worth, is, is there still something here for me when I, when I have to give those things up? And I, I would say I'm better off for it. I'm better off for having had a very difficult time in, in graduate school now because I realize the things that I, I cling my identity to don't have to be the things that I, uh, that I cling my identity to. Um, and so failure rattles me less than it used to. Uh, success uh, is, is, is uh, viewed hopefully more in its proper place. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'd like to think that one doesn't need to go through a reckoning like that in order to appreciate both the intrinsic and the extrinsic goods. Uh, but I, I guess I'm a little, uh, um, uh, I'm a little more um, of the mindset that we, that we, that somewhere we have to do that reckoning. And, and, you know, for many kids, it happens at, at, at earlier stages and ages, right? You discount yourself from doing mathematics because you think you're not a math person. So you, you leave it and then you miss out on this whole other aspect of seeing life and, and the world in, in, uh, in wonderful ways. Um, 
And so it, the more that we can get away from, from achievement-oriented uh, thinking, I think the better off all of us would be in, in all of our intellectual pursuits. And maybe there is a, a certain uh, truth to the fact that many of our, many people, our students and, and ourselves, have to experience, experience that loss on a personal sense to really appreciate it. Maybe if, if more math teachers and English teachers and other teachers uh, do a better job of articulating the intrinsic goods of our disciplines, yes. um, maybe students will be better equipped to kind of go through that dark night of the soul. And, yes. and maybe it won't be as, uh, I don't know, existentially threatening to them. Yes. Uh, but yeah. I think, so maybe we, can, maybe we can lay the groundwork so that when those, when they experience failure, because we all experience failure, um, it's more redemptive. We, we're able to, to sort of deal with that in more healthy ways and be reminded that, hey, that's not why I was doing this anyway. Yeah. I was supposed to be doing this for love. Yeah. And, and one, way, one way to teach math is to say, you know, when, when a kid comes up with a, a solution that's wrong, it's just to say you're wrong and move on. Uh, but that's not the loving way to do it. And it's not uh, a way that actually leads to, uh, uh, it's not actually not the, the right picture of the world, so to speak, right? Like I, I would say uh, the, the way we should teach students when they come up with an idea is, you know, I think behind every wrong idea is actually uh, the germ of uh, a struggle to understand, right? And so what I encourage uh, teachers to do and myself to do as well is, is, to see in every answer that a student gives, what's the thinking behind that answer? And to really, uh, and when you dig into that, you can build on the idea. Like I, I tell my students, if they have some, you know, come up with an idea that's not right, I say, hey, you know, how can you modify that so that it is, it actually is closer uh, uh, to the truth? Uh, and, and that's a way that I think it has, is a healthier way of thinking about what you're doing with the, the formation of students uh, mathematically informing them, right? They, they have some thinking that uh, is not quite there, but then can be modified until it gets there, right? And that's, that's a way of building up rather than tearing down. And that's, that's I think that's, that's what love calls us to. Yeah, that's a way of teaching that where the teacher also practices love for the discipline, but for the student in particular. Um, yeah. Well, amen. May, may uh, your book uh, challenge and encourage more of us, whether we teach in math or outside of math, to uh, to teach in this way and to, to help our students um, see math, but but these other disciplines too as um, intrinsic human goods that can contribute to to our flourishing. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, thank I, you, Francis. Uh,